Chapter Eight of Lonesome Land by B. M. Bower. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight, The Prairie Fire. A calamity expected, feared, and guarded against by a whole community does sometimes occur, and with a suddenness which finds the victims unprepared, in spite of all their elaborate precautions. Compared with the importance of saving the range from fire, it was but a trivial thing which took nearly every man who dwelt in Lonesome Land to town on a certain day, when the wind blew free from out the west. They were weary of watching for the fire which did not come licking through the prairie grass, and a special campaign train bearing a prospective president of our United States was expected to pass through Hope that afternoon. Since all trains watered at the red tank by the creek, there would be a five-minute stop, during which the prospective president would stand upon the rear platform and deliver a three-minute address, a few gracious words to tickle the self-esteem of his listeners, and would employ the other two minutes in shaking the hand of every man, woman, and child who could reach him before the train pulled out. There would be a cheer or two, given as he was borne away, and there would be something to talk about afterward in the saloons. Scarce a man of them had ever seen a president, and it was worth riding far to look upon a man who even hoped for so exalted a position. Manley went because he intended to vote for the man, and called it an act of loyalty to his party to greet the candidate, also because it took very little now that haying was over and work did not press, to start him down the trail in the direction of hope. At the Blumenthal ranch no man save the cook remained at home, and he only because he had a boil on his neck which sapped his interest in all things else. Polycarp Jenks was in town by nine o'clock, and only one man remained at the wishbone. That man was Kent, and he stayed because according to his outraged companions he was an ornery cuss and his bump of patriotism was a hollow in his skull kent had told them one and all that he wouldn't ride twenty-five miles to shake hands with the deity himself which however is not a verbatim report of his statement the prospective president had not done anything so big he said that a man should want to break his neck getting to town just to watch him go by. He was dead sure he, for one, wasn't going to make a fool of himself over any swell-headed politician. Still, he saddled and rode with his fellows for a mile or two, and called them unseemly names in a facetious tone, and the men of the wishbone answered his taunts with shrill yells of derision when he swung out of the trail and jogged away to the south, and finally passed out of sight in the haze which still hung depressingly over the land. Oddly enough, while all the able-bodied men, save Kent, were waiting hilariously in hope to greet, with enthusiasm, the brief presence of the man who would feign to be their political chief, the train which bore him eastward scattered fiery destruction abroad as it sped across the range, four minutes late and straining to make up the time before the next stop. They had thought the railroad safe at last, 
what with the guards and the numerous burned patches where the fire had jumped the ploughed boundary and blackened the earth to the fence which marked the line of the right-of-way and in some places had burned beyond it took a flag-flying special train of that bitter presidential campaign to find a weak spot in the guard and to send a spark straight into the thickest bunch of wiry sand-grass where the wind could fan it to a blaze and then seize it and bend the tall flame tongues until they looked around the next tuft of grass and the next and the next until the spark was grown to a long leaping line of fire sweeping eastward with the relentless rush of a tidal wave upon a low-lying beach arline hawley was perhaps the only citizen of hope who had deliberately chosen to absent herself from the crowd standing in perspiring expectation upon the depot platform she had permitted minnie the breed girl to go and had even grudgingly assented to her using a box of cornstarch as first aid to her complexion arline had not approved however of either the complexion or the occasion what you want to go and plaster your face up with starch for gets me she had criticized frankly seems to me you're homely enough without looking silly into the bargain nobody's going to look at you no matter what you do they're out to rubber at a higher mark than you be and what they expect to see so great gets me he ain't nothing but a man and land knows men is common enough and ornery enough without running like a band of sheep to see one i don't see as he's any better just because he's running for president if he gets beat he'll want to hide his head in a hole in the ground look at my walt he was the biggest man in hope and so swell-headed he wouldn't so much as pack a bucket of water all fall or chop up a tie for kindlin till the day after election and what was he then but a frazzled-out back number that everybody give the laugh till he come up and blowed his brains out any fool can run for president it's the feller that gets there that counts say that red white and blue ribbon sure looks fierce on that green dress but i reckon blood will tell even if it's injun blood go on or you'll be late and have your trouble for your pay but hurry back soon's the agony's over the bread'll be ready to mix out even after the girl was gone her finery a flutter in the sweeping west wind arline muttered aloud her opinion of men and particularly of politicians who rode about in special trains and expected the homage of their fellows she was in the back yard taking her white clothes off the line when the special came puffing slowly into town to emphasize her disapproval of the whole system of politics she turned her back square toward it and laid violent hold of a sheet there was a smudge of cinders upon its white surface and it crushed crisply under her thumb with the unmistakable feel of burned grass now what in time began arline aloud after the manner of women whose tongues must keep pace with their thoughts that there feels fresh and with a sniff at the spot smells fresh 
with the wisdom of much experience she faced the hot wind and sniffed again while her eyes searched keenly the skyline which was the ragged top of the bluff marking the northern boundary of the great prairie land a trifle darker it was there and there was a certain sullen glow discernible only to eyes trained to read the sky for warning signals of snow fire and flood that's a fire and it's this side of the river and if it is then the railroad set it and there ain't a living thing to stop it and the wind's just right a curdled roll of smoke showed plainly for a moment in the haze she crammed her armful of sheets into the battered willow basket threw two clothespins hastily toward the same receptacle and ran the special had just come to a stop at the depot the cattlemen cowboys and townspeople were packed close around the rear of the train their backs to the wind and the disaster sweeping down upon them their brown faces upturned to the sleek carefully groomed man in the light gray suit with a flaunting prairie sunflower ostentatiously displayed in his buttonhole and with his campaign smile upon his lips and dull boredom looking out of his eyes ladies and gentlemen he was saying as he smiled you favored ones whose happy lot it is to live in the most glorious state of our glorious union i greet you and i envy you arline with her soiled kitchen apron her ragged coil of dust-brown hair her work-drawn face and faded eyes which blazed with excitement pushed unceremoniously through the crowd and confronted him undazzled mr candidate you better move on and give these men a chance to save their property she cried shrilly they got something to do besides stand round here and listen at you throwin' campaign loads the whole country's afire back of us and the wind's bringin' it down on a long lope she turned from the astounded candidate and glared at the startled crowd every one of whom she knew personally i must say i got my opinion of a bunch that'll stand here swallowing a lot of hot air while their coat-tails is most ready to catch a fire her voice was rasping and it carried to the farthest of them you make me tired political slush all of it and the whole darned country a-blazin behind you the crowd moved uneasily then scattered away from the shelter of the depot to where they could snuff inquiringly the wind like dogs in the leash that's right yelled blumenthal of the double diamond there's a fire sure as hell he started to run the man behind him hesitated but a second then gripped his hat against the push of the wind and began running presently men women and children were running all in one direction the prospective president stood agape upon the platform of his bunting draped car his chosen allies grouped foolishly around him it was the first time men had turned from his presence with his gracious flatteringly noncommittal speech unuttered his hand unshaken his smiling bowing departure unmarked by cheers growing fainter as he receded only arline tarried 
her thin fingers gripping the arm of her breed girl, lest she catch the panic and run with the others. Arline tilted back her head upon her scrawny shoulders and eyed the prospective president with antagonism unconcealed. "'I got something to say to you before you go,' she announced, in her rasping voice, with its querulous note. "'I want to tell you that the chances are a hundred to one you set that fire yourself, with your engine that's hauling you around over the country, so you can jolly men into voting for you. Your train's the only one over the road since noon, and that fire started from the railroad. The whole town's liable to burn, unless it can be stopped the other side of the creek, to say nothing of the range that feeds our stock, and the hay, and maybe houses, and maybe people. She caught her breath and almost shrieked the last three words, as a dreadful probability flashed into her mind. I know a woman, just a girl, and she's back there twenty mile, alone, and her man's here to look at you go by. I hope you get beat just for that. If this town catches a fire and burns up, I hope you run into the ditch before you get ten mile. If you was a man, and them fellers with you was men, you'd hold up your train and help save the town. Every feller counts when it comes to fightin' fire. She stopped and eyed the group keenly. But you won't. I don't reckon you ever done anything with them hands in your life that would grind a little honest dirt into your knuckles and under them shiny nails. The prospective president turned red to his ears and hastily removed his immaculate hands from where they had been resting upon the railing and he did not hold up the train while he and his allies stopped to help save the town. The whistle gave a warning toot, the bell jangled, and the train slid away toward the next town, leaving Arlene staring tight-lipped after it. "'The darn chump! He'd a made votes hand over fist if he'd called my bluff, but I knew he wouldn't soon as I'd seen his face. He ain't man enough.' "'He's real good-lookin',' sighed Minnie, feebly attempting to release her arm from the grasp of her mistress. "'And did you notice the fellow with the big yellow mustache? He kept eyeing me.' "'Well, I don't wonder, but it ain't anything to your credit,' snapped Arline, facing her toward the hotel. "'You do look like sin a-flyin' in that green dress and with all that starch on your face.' You get along to the house and mix that bread, first thing you do, and start a fire. And if I ain't back by that time, you go ahead with the supper. You know what to get. We're liable to have all the tables full, so you set all of them. She was hurrying away when the girl called to her. Did you mean Miss Fleetwood when you said that about the woman burning? And do you suppose she's really in the fire? "'You shut up and go along,' cried Arline roughly, under the stress of her own fears. "'How in time's anybody's going to tell? That's twenty miles away.' She left the street and went hurrying through backyards and across vacant lots, crawled through a wire fence, and so reached, without any roundabout method, the trail which led to the top of the bluff, where the whole town was breathlessly assembling. 
her flat-chested, uncorseted figure merged into the haze as she half-trotted up the steep road, swinging her arms like a man, her skirts flapping in the wind. As she went, she kept muttering to herself, "'If she really is caught by the fire, and her alone, and man more'n half drunk!' She whirled and stood waiting for the horseman, who was galloping up the trail behind her. "'You going home, man? You don't think it could get to your place, do you?' She shouted the question at him as he pounded past. Manly, sallow white with terror, shook his head vaguely and swung his heavy quirt down upon the flanks of his horse. Arline lowered her head against the dust kicked into her face as he went tearing past her and kept doggedly on. Someone came rattling up behind her with empty barrels dancing erratically in a wagon, and she left the trail to make room. The hostler from their own stable it was who drove, and at the creek ahead of them he stopped to fill the barrels. Arline passed him by and kept on. At the brow of the hill the women and children were gathered in a whimpering group. Arline joined them and gazed out over the prairie, where the smoke was rolling toward them, and, lifting here and there, let a flare of yellow through. "'It'll show up fine at dark,' a fat woman in a buggy remarked. "'There's nothing grander to look at than a prairie fire at night.' "'I do hope,' she added weakly, "'it don't do no great damage.' "'Oh, it won't.' Arline cut in, with savage sarcasm, panting from her climb. "'It's bound to sweep the whole country slick and clean, and maybe burn us all out. But that won't matter, so long as it looks pretty after dark.' "'They say it's a good ten mile away yet,' another woman volunteered encouragingly. "'They'll get it stopped all right. There's lots of men here to fight it, thank goodness.' Arline moved on to where a plow was being hurriedly uploaded from a wagon, the horses hitched to it, and a man already grasping the handles in an aggressive manner. As she came up, he went off, yelling his opinions and turning a shallow, uneven furrow for a back fire. Within five minutes, another plow was tearing up the sod in an opposite direction. "'If it jumps here, or they can't turn it, the creek'll help a lot, someone was yelling. The plowed furrows lengthened, the horses sweating and throwing their heads up and down with the discomfort of the pace they must keep. Whiplashes whistled, and the drivers urged them on with much shouting. Blumenthal, cut off with his men from reaching his own ranch, was directing a group about to set a backfire. His voice boomed as if he were shouting across a milling herd. A roll of his eye brought his attention momentarily from the work, and he ran toward a horseman who was gesticulating wildly and seemed on the point of riding straight toward the fire. "'Hi, Fleetwood, we need you here,' he yelled. "'You can't get home now, and you know it. The fire's past your place already. You'd have to ride through it, you fool.' "'Hey! Your wife's home, alone! Alone!' He stood absolutely still and stared out to the southwest, where the smoke-cloud was rolling closer with every breath. 
he drew his fingers across his forehead and glanced at the men around him also stunned into inactivity by the tragedy behind the words well get to work men we've got to save the town fine time to burn guards when a fire's loping up on you but that's the way it goes generally this ought to have been done a month ago put it off and put it off while they haggle over bids brinberg you and i'll string the fire the rest of you watch it don't jump back and say he shouted from the group around manley don't let that crazy fool start off now put him to work best thing for him but my god that's awful he did not shout the last sentence he spoke so that only the nearest man heard him heard and nodded dumb assent manley raged sitting helpless there upon his horse they would not let him ride out toward that sweeping wave of fire he could not have gone five miles toward home before he met the flames he stood in the stirrups and shook his fists impotently he strained his eyes to see what it was impossible for him to see his ranch and val and how they had fared he pictured mentally the guard he had burned beyond the coulee to protect them from just this danger and his heart squeezed tight at the realization of his own shiftlessness that guard a twelve-foot strip of half-burned sod with tufts of grass left standing here and there and he had meant to burn it wider and had put it off from just day to day until now now his clenched fist dropped upon the saddle horn and he stared dully at the rushing rolling smoke and fire it was not that he saw it was val with cinder blackened ruffles grimy face and yellow hair falling in loose locks upon her cheeks locks which she must stop to push out of her eyes so that she could see where to swing the sodden sack while she helped him him manly who had permitted her to work it for none but a man's hard muscles so that he might finish the sooner and ride to town upon some flimsy pretext and he could not even reach her now or the place where she had been the group had thinned around him for there was something to do besides give sympathy to a man bereaved unless they bestirred themselves they might all be in need of sympathy before the day was done manley took his eyes from the coming fire and glanced around him saw that he was alone and with a despairing oath wheeled his horse and raced back down the hill to town as if fiends rode behind the saddle at the saloon opposite the holly hotel he drew up rather his horse stopped there of his own accord as if he were quite at home at that particular hitching pole manley dismounted heavily and lurched inside the place was deserted save for jim who was paid to watch the wares of his employer and was now standing upon a chair at the window that he might see over the top of holly's coal shed and glimpse the hilltop beyond jim stepped down and came toward him how's the fire he demanded anxiously think she'll swing over this way but manley had sunk into a chair and buried his face in his arms folded upon a whiskey-spotted card table val my val 
he wailed. "'Back there alone. Get me a drink,' he added thickly, "'or I'll go crazy.' Jim hastily poured a full glass and stood over him anxiously. "'Here it is. Drink her down and brace up. "'What you mean? Is your wife—' Manley lifted his head long enough to gulp the whiskey, then dropped it again upon his arms and groaned. End of chapter 8